Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In this discussion, we're going to take our second and final look at the ethical rules that govern barristers in their practice. We're going to leave for a moment the Legal Profession Uniform Conduct Barristers Rules of 2015, but we'll end up returning to them because particularly in relation to the Civil Procedure Act provisions that we need to look at, they're so closely aligned with some of the barristers' rules that they really go hand in hand. So put the barristers' rules to one side, uh, but not too far away because we'll end up coming back to them. So in today's discussion, we need to look at two sources of law. One is the Legal Profession Uniform Law, which is found in Schedule 1 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act of 2014, which I've linked to in the show notes. And in particular, we're focusing on Part 5.4, which deals with disciplinary matters and how barristers can be disciplined for inappropriate conduct. And then the third source of law with respect to ethics is the Civil Procedure Act. So the first is the barristers' rules, which is very heavily examined. Second are these disciplinary matters, which are sort of secondary to the barristers' rules. So you might start with the barristers' rules for the first source of inappropriate conduct. Then you move to disciplinary matters and how barristers can be disciplined for particular infractions or a series of infractions. And then you've got the Civil Procedure Act. The Civil Procedure Act, as the name suggests, only relate to civil procedures. So if you're dealing with the criminal part of the bar exam, then you'd be looking at the other two sources of law. But if an ethical scenario arises in the civil part of the exam, then you'd need to look at all three. And as mentioned, they go hand in hand, but we've made the links as we've gone in relation to cross-referencing. So in relation to the legal profession uniform law, the starting point with respect to disciplinary matters, um, which is on slide three, are the definitions of the two sources of conduct that can attract penalties under the uh, provisions. Now, there are two possible allegations that can be raised against a barrister. Firstly, unsatisfactory professional conduct under section 296 of the uniform law and separately professional misconduct. The characterisation of unsatisfactory professional conduct is at a lower level compared to professional misconduct. So we'll start with section 296 and its definition, and then we move on to 297, which is somewhat of an escalation. So as you'll see from the slide, unsatisfactory professional conduct includes conduct of a lawyer, which obviously includes a barrister, occurring in connection with the practice of law that falls short of the standard of competence and diligence that a member of the public is entitled to expect of a reasonably competent lawyer. So unsatisfactory professional conduct, as the name suggests, and then as the definition suggests, tends to relate to conduct occurring in connection with the practice of law. So typically that will involve some inappropriate behaviour about the, the practice of law, essentially in court or out of court, dealing with a client, but something to do with legal practice as opposed to something traditionally that falls purely outside that. So that might be, for instance, drug or alcohol use. But you can see that there's a linkage because though it wouldn't happen all of the time, it might be 
that because of a lawyer's issues with respect to issues that take place outside of the office, such as alcohol abuse, that might then lead to conduct in the office occurring in connection with the practice of law that falls short of that necessary standard of competence and diligence. My suggestion is to start with looking for some locus between the conduct and the practice of law in order to attract that definition. So Section 297 escalates to professional misconduct, which, as I've mentioned, is of a higher standard of inappropriateness than unsatisfactory professional conduct. So you'll see from the definition that professional misconduct includes A is unsatisfactory professional conduct of a lawyer where the conduct involves a substantial or consistent failure to reach or maintain a reasonable standard of competence and diligence. And B, conduct of a lawyer, whether occurring in connection with the practice of law or occurring otherwise than in connection with the practice of law that would, if established, justify a finding that the lawyer is not a fit and proper person to engage in legal practice. So there are two alternative examples of what might amount to professional misconduct. So firstly, you will see um, from those definitions that it's not necessary that that be localised by reference to the practice of law. So if we have a look, for instance, at that first limb under 297A, Though unsatisfactory professional conduct would tend to suggest it relates to the practice of law, the difficulty that a lawyer may face is that it requires substantial or consistent failure to reach or maintain that uh, reasonable standard. So as you can see, that is a little like unsatisfactory professional conduct, but there's that level of escalation by reference to that substantial or consistent failure. It might be that a series of allegations of unsatisfactory professional conduct would then amount to um, professional misconduct under that first limb. The second example is under B, 297B, conduct of a lawyer, whether occurring in connection with the practice of law or occurring otherwise than in connection with the practice of law, that then might justify a finding that the lawyer is not a fit and proper person to engage in legal practice. And this squarely involves conduct not only in connection with practice, but also outside practice. So first thing first, get your definitions straight. Um, It might be that under the pressure of time in the exam itself, you could group them. Um, So it could be an allegation, you might say, of either unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct. But the focus of them is slightly different, um, as I've just explained. And of course, unsatisfactory professional conduct is of a lower standard um, of a breach than the alternative. The definitions, as mentioned, have been extracted in the slides. And then we move on to examples of conduct capable of constituting unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct that are mentioned in Section 298. Examples that are offered include, and here you can see how the examples link back so closely to the barrister's rules, and if you're dealing with a civil procedure, the Civil Procedure Act. So it could be a contravention of the regulations governing the conduct of lawyers that amounts to unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct. So keep Section 298 handy. If your um, barrister in the bar exam has committed a breach of the barrister's rules, then that might then lead to a breach of this law, which might lead to those uh, consequences. 
It could be as a result of overcharging. It could be as a result of conviction of a serious offence, a tax offence or an offence involving dishonesty and so on and so forth. So first look at the breach of the Barrister's Rules or the Civil Procedure Act. Secondly, look at the linkage. And then thirdly, look independently to see whether there's any other behaviour that might give rise to that suspicion of Section uh, 296 or 297. The next stage in the analysis of the ethical principles is to move on to the capacity for external agencies to regulate lawyers and manage complaints. As mentioned on slide seven, when it comes to external regulation, there are two layers of accountability. In Victoria, we have what's referred to in the Act as the Local Regulatory Authority, the Legal Services Board, in other words, and the Legal Services Commissioner. And then there's what's called the Designated Tribunal, which in Victoria is VCAT. So the language used in the Act, which, as uh, we've mentioned, is uniform but adapted to the Victorian circumstances, the Local Regulatory Authority and the Designated Tribunal. So the roles are slightly different. Under Section 299 of the Act, the first port of call is the Local Regulatory Authority, which, as you may remember, is the Victorian Legal Services Board and the Victorian Legal Services Commissioner. So that authority, those two authorities in their two slightly separate parts, have jurisdiction in relation to unsatisfactory professional conduct, but not in relation to a finding of professional misconduct. So taking the trip back to the earlier slides, in relation to the Victorian Legal Services Board, if there has been a complaint alleging unsatisfactory professional conduct under Section 296, then that local regulatory authority has jurisdiction to make a finding. In relation to professional misconduct, that local regulatory authority is not the ultimate decision maker and can't impose penalties for professional misconduct under Section 297. In fact, as we'll get to in a moment, The authority then becomes the investigator and prosecutor with respect to unsatisfactory professional misconduct. So here your problem-solving methodology will split based on whether your primary evaluation is whether the barrister in the fact pattern has engaged in unsatisfactory professional conduct, in which case the authority is the end of the line, or if it's suggested that there's been an allegation of professional misconduct, then the authority becomes the investigator and VCAP becomes the ultimate decision maker. So let's start with unsatisfactory professional conduct and not professional misconduct. So as per slide eight, if the authority finds that a lawyer has engaged in unsatisfactory professional conduct, it has jurisdiction to determine the matter and it has jurisdiction to make orders against the lawyer, including the barrister. And those orders may include, as per those sub-bullet points, a caution or reprimand, at the necessity for an apology or to redo work, all the way up to conducting legal practice under supervision, a fine of up to $25,000, or operating with a condition on their practising certificate. There is a requirement of natural justice and the authority must provide details of the proposed determination to the lawyer and complainant and consider any written submissions made before imposing the determination. Separately to that, we move to the designated tribunal. So 
in relation to the Victorian Legal Services Board and the Victorian Legal Services Commissioner, as mentioned, they don't have jurisdiction to make a finding in relation to professional misconduct. Instead, the Victorian Legal Services Board slash Commissioner may initiate and prosecute proceedings against a barrister in the designated tribunal, which is VCAT, if Victorian Legal Services Board is of the opinion that the alleged conduct may amount to unsatisfactory professional conduct that would be more appropriately dealt with by the designated tribunal or the alleged conduct may amount to professional misconduct. So in relation to the more serious allegations of unsatisfactory professional conduct and or all investigations with respect to professional misconduct, Victorian Legal Services Board slash Commissioner becomes the um, prosecutor and the uh, VCAT becomes the forum in which the allegation is determined. And that's Section 300 of the Act. Moving on to Section 302, if VCAT conducts such a hearing, which is done in accordance with the normal VCAT rules and procedures, and if they make a finding that the lawyer or barrister in the circumstances of the exam is guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct, then not only does it have the same powers as the orders that the Victorian Legal Services Board can impose under Section 299, it also has the powers to do any of the matters listed in the sub-bullet points on slide 10. So it could order that the barrister do or refrain from doing something in connection with the practice of law and so on and so forth. It can prohibit a lawyer from applying for a practising certificate for a specified period. It can impose a compensation order to be paid by the lawyer. It can impose a fine of up to $100,000, but only in relation to professional misconduct. So if there's a finding of unsatisfactory professional conduct, then the fine is capped at $25,000. And it can recommend that the lawyer, barrister, be removed from the Supreme Court role. And the final point that arises under Section 302 even if the Victorian Legal Services Board alleges professional misconduct at the commencement of a tribunal inquiry, then the tribunal still has the capacity to find the lawyer guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct. Sections 303 to 305 uh, bring this discussion to an end and they relate to, to collateral issues, for instance, with respect to costs. Now, if the barrister's found guilty, uh, a cost order is made by the tribunal against that person in favour of the Victorian Legal Services Board or the complainant, unless exceptional circumstances exist. But if the barrister is found not guilty, then VCAT may make orders that they pay costs if there's been a failure to cooperate, and they may make an order that the Victorian Legal Services Board pay the costs of the barrister if they're found not guilty and special circumstances warrant the order. So that brings an end to those disciplinary procedure provisions. And you'll note that I've said now a number of times to make sure that you pair the availability of those procedures and findings to your other conclusions with respect to breaches of the barrister's rules, although of course they can arise even if there's no particular alleged breach of the barrister's rules.
We now turn to the Civil Procedure Act, which um, we'll revisit when we come to look at civil procedures, obviously, and civil proceedings. But it's logical to raise it now because it, it really rests in so nicely with each of the provisions that we've been looking at. But please note, of course, it only applies to civil procedures. So in relation to the bar exam, as you may know, the questions are divided into criminal proceedings and civil proceedings. So if here you are dealing with the criminal procedure part of the exam, of course you would not refer to the civil procedure ethical principles and the uh, possibility of penalties for non-compliance. So the way that the Civil Procedure Act is that it doesn't expressly refer to ethics as such. So the ethics are, as we've discussed under the Legal Profession Uniform Conduct Barristers Rules and the uh, Practice Act that I've just taken you through. So instead, the Civil Procedure Act creates overarching obligations. But once we start looking at those overarching obligations, they sit so closely with some of the rules that we've been looking at that it's logical to deal with it now. The Civil Procedure Act applies those overarching obligations not only to parties but also to legal practitioners acting for or on behalf of a party and that's a Section 10 of the Civil Procedure Act. So that's the way that your prospective barrister might be caught for the purpose of the exam. The overarching obligations apply broadly so they don't just apply to a civil trial in the running, they also apply to any aspect of a civil proceeding, including interlocutory applications and proceedings and appeals and during appropriate dispute resolution stages. So if the fact pattern involves dubious behaviour in a civil proceeding, cross-reference the provisions that we're just about to discuss and the other sources of ethical responsibilities. We'll take you briefly through the overarching obligations. These are set out in a series of successive provisions in the Civil Procedure Act, so there's no shortcut. You just need to get out the Act and look at these provisions starting at Section 16. The obligations imposed on parties but also on lawyers, including barristers, include these. Section 16, there is a paramount duty to the court to further the administration of justice. Section 17 obliges a requirement to act honestly. And here we cross-reference the barrister's rules, Rule 8, which has been included on the slide, but states a barrister must not engage in conduct, which includes dishonest or otherwise discreditable behaviour. So if there is a Rule 8 breach allegation and it's a civil procedure, please cross-reference right to Section 17, one of the overarching obligations. You'll see Section 18, there's a requirement in civil proceedings for any claim or response to claim to have a proper basis. It can't be vexatious, frivolous or an abusive process. Section 19 obliges a requirement only to take steps to resolve or determine the dispute, which serves the purpose, you might think, of avoiding undue delay and undue expense. Section 16 of the Act creates a requirement to cooperate with other parties and the court in the conduct of proceedings. Section 21 creates an overarching obligation not to engage in misleading or deceptive conduct or conduct that's likely to mislead or deceive. And here we cross-reference the barrister's rules, Rule 8, which um, I've just reminded you about, which is that a barrister can't engage in conduct which is, um, is misleading or deceptive. 
And also Barristers Rule 24, a barrister must not deceive or knowingly or recklessly mislead the court. And Rule 25, a barrister must take all necessary steps to correct any misleading statements made by the barrister to a court as soon as possible after the barrister becomes aware that the statement was misleading. And Section 22 creates an overarching obligation that is a requirement to use responsible, sorry, reasonable endeavours to resolve the dispute, including appropriate dispute resolution, unless it's not in the interests of justice. So you will understand that if there is a um, dispute resolution scenario that might arise in civil proceedings, and you could imagine a scenario where the barrister declines to engage in such processes because of some um, perception that their client can achieve a tactical advantage by stonewalling, that would breach the overarching obligations outlined in the Civil Procedure Act. Coming to an end, Section 23 of the Civil Procedure Act, there's a requirement on a barrister to narrow issues in dispute, which cross-references so nicely to Rule 58 of the Barrister's Rules, which, and here I'm summarising, uh, it's set out in full at slide 15, a barrister must seek to ensure that work which the barrister is briefed to do in relation to a case is done so as to... A, confine the case to identified issues which are genuinely in dispute. And there are the other paragraphs of that rule that emphasise that that obligation continues all the way through to its conclusion. Section 24 of the Civil Procedure Act creates an overarching obligation to ensure costs are reasonable and proportionate to the complexity or importance of the issues or and or the amount in dispute in the civil procedure. Section 25 creates an overarching obligation to minimise delay and this cross-references with Rule 57 of the Barrister's Rules, which states that a barrister A must seek to ensure that the barrister does work, which the barrister is briefed to do in sufficient time to enable compliance with orders, directions, rules or practice notes of the court and B, if the barrister has reasonable grounds to believe that they may not complete any such work on time, must promptly inform the instructing solicitor or the client. And lastly, Section 26, the last accessible overarching obligation, there's a requirement to disclose the existence of documents, which, of course, brings a tear to the criminal lawyer's eye, particularly if they're working in defence. But in the civil procedure, as we'll discuss closely in relation to disclosure obligations, is paired then with Section 26 of the Civil Procedure Act. So there's the batch of overarching obligations. And as I've mentioned, they dovetail with a number of the barrister's rules um, that we've had a look at and that are accessible. We need to move to the practical consequences of contravening overarching obligations so that in addition to um, liability to the Victorian bar, uh, which might arise as a result of the breach of the barrister's rules, in addition to liability to the Victorian Legal Services Board and or VCAT, which might arise under the Act, under the Civil Procedure Act, there's potentially a third source of responsibility if there is a breach, and that is that under Section 28, the court hearing the civil uh, proceeding may take a barrister's contravention of the overarching obligation into account, including in exercise of discretion with respect to costs. So there could be costs implications uh, to the client and or what's about to come, Section 29. 
So if the court is satisfied on the balance of probabilities, that is uh, in application of the Brigginshaw standard, that a barrister has contravened any overarching obligation, the court may make any order it considers appropriate in the interests of justice. Helpfully, some examples of the types of orders that can be made by the court are then listed. But it could be, for instance, under 291A of the Civil Procedure Act, that the barrister may personally be ordered to pay some or all of the costs and expenses arising from a contravention. So you could imagine a fact pattern, for instance, where a barrister accepts a brief in a civil procedure and then realises too late that they have not prepared sufficiently, which necessitates a late adjournment, or it could be that they have booked a matter in for some interlocutory stage, which it turns out doesn't have a proper factual basis to sustain it. If the court found on that Brigginshaw standard that there had been the breach of the overarching obligation such as to, for instance, act honestly in those scenarios, which was Section 17 and or Section 19, only to take steps to resolve or determine the dispute, and Section 25, which is the requirement to minimise delay, then it may be that the barrister is personally responsible for the costs and expenses arising from that interlocutory stage that needs to be adjourned or should never have been listed in the first place. And you'll see from slide 17 the other steps available, the other consequences available to the court, including orders that the person takes certain steps to remedy the contravention and any other order that the court considers is in the interests of a person prejudicially affected by the contravention. So the consequences for contravention um, are dire, particularly for the cost implications, but it could also be substantive orders um, that are made that prevent the running of certain procedures and the availability of certain substantive steps in the case. There has been a helpful summary of some of the cases that have reviewed these processes in the slides that follow. The purpose of Section 29 is a sanction compare to the Supreme Court rules, which will come to in due course. Powers under the Supreme Court rules are intended to serve a compensatory purpose. So the Civil Procedure Act carries the sting of a sanction um, if there's been a breach found to the Brigginshaw standard of the overarching obligations. Yarra Australia and Oswald is one of the cases that we'll look at when we come to review the accessible case law. But in that case, the uh, Supreme Court considered it appropriate, the court of, that is the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court, considered it appropriate to order costs against solicitors uh, for a portion of um, the, the costs claimable by reason of overrepresentation by counsel. Note play section 30 and 31, there are time limits for orders uh, to be made under section 29 to sanction uh, one of the lawyers or the parties. Now, in relation to those uh, cases, they are for noting, except as indicated in the uh, bar exam reading guide. So at this point, have a read and note because they're a very helpful summary of the types of issues that the court considers relevant and appropriate to apply in the circumstances of a particular case. But we'll separately look at the examinable cases towards the end of our discussions. And lastly, uh, there is a summary of the barrister's rules in a group 
uh, that relevant and that apply in this context. So slide, see, please see slide 21, 22 and 23 um, for the list of the barrister's rules aggregated into a series as opposed to being dealt with bit by bit, which is how they've been dealt with as we discussed um, the provisions of the legislation as we've gone. So that concludes the examinable provisions of the various pieces of legislation that deal with ethics. Mercifully, this has been quite short. Um, as mentioned, we'll have to touch on a couple of the old cases later in our discussions. In our next discussion, we'll start looking at criminal procedure, which is going to take a little bit longer than half an hour. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.